This morning we're going to be talking about falling away and sorrow and how we see that playing out in this passage. Um, more specifically, we're going to be talking about, the, talking about these as two realities that the disciples are facing in the story. Um, two realities that Jesus is sort of counseling them in um, and offering them a solution to. So to sort of paint a picture for um, what I mean by falling away, I want to tell you a story. Um, there's a writer named M.T. Anderson, and he's fairly well known. He won the National Book Awards, won a few other awards. Um, and I, I kind of found this, this interview with him intriguing in the way he talked about growing up in the faith. Um, his mom was an Episcopal minister. She would uh, critique, he, he would, they would spend Sunday afternoons together critiquing her sermons. Um, but there was also this weird nuance to his faith experience where his grandma would come over and he was a very imaginative kid and um, liked to kind of make up characters and have imaginative play. His grandma thought he was demon possessed and so naturally tried to exercise him. And this was kind of a recurring thing in his childhood of um, anytime his grandma would come over and his parents were away, this would happen. And his parents didn't believe him that it happened when he told them when he was older. And it was this whole thing. And the only way he could get out of it is if he pretended that it worked. He pretended that um, he was speaking in tongues. And then that would kind of um, kind of assuage her and they could move on. Um, but as he grew up, um, the truths of God began to carry less sway in his life. He, he talks about, as a kid, I believed all of this. It meant a lot to me. Um, I loved God, um, and I loved um, the promises of God. Um, and one day he grew up and realized he didn't believe anymore. And uh, he doesn't necessarily, in the interview, point to when that, when that switch happened. But somewhere in his teenage years, he woke up one morning and was like, I, I don't think any of this is true. And the interviewer, very interestingly, asked him, well, do you miss it? What, what you, all of that experience that you had, do you miss what that was like in your life? And I don't think she was really ready for his response. Because he sort of broke down and went into just a basically a sermon about all of the, um, the love of God in his life, this intimate connection with, um, with God, um, that he once believed was true, this universal love that filled him and gave his life meaning and um, this wonderful sensation, this belief that there was no, there was no end, that death, death was not the final word. Um, he said, you know, I've honestly never gotten over that fact. The fact that I now believe that that is not true, I've never recovered from that. And the interviewer kind of stumbled. She's like, well, well wait a minute. Wait, wait a second. You can get that anywhere. You, you, you can get, you know, that's, that's just a feeling. Like, what, what's, let's try to diagnose and figure out what that feeling is you're actually talking about. Because surely you can find that elsewhere. And he, and he kind of backpedals a little bit. And you're like, oh, she wasn't ready for me to actually pour my heart out just then. So how can I downshift into intellectual discussion and give her what she wants? And she's like, oh, well, you know, I understand it in aesthetic terms as being... This, uh, this 18th century idea of the sublime, which, if you're like me, you probably have to look that up to figure out what he means by that. Um, and he's like, 
It's this idea that you get when you're overcome by the vastness of the world, the vastness of creation, and your smallness within it. He's like, it's like, and I can get that anytime walking outside in Vermont, walking along the countryside and feeling the vastness and feeling my place in it. And then I get a little piece of what that feeling was that I, I remember having as a boy. So I want you to keep that in your mind as we talk about this passage, because this is sort of this is sort of what you're left with after falling away. This is sort of what Jesus is trying to protect the disciples from this passage. So why is he concerned about the disciples falling away? What what's going on that makes him think that's a possibility? He says in verse one of chapter 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So Jesus is telling them what's going to happen when he goes. And they're not really ready for this. They're just kind of trucking along doing the work of Jesus with Jesus. Everything's great. He says, but I'm actually going to go. And when that happens, you're going to be thrown out of the synagogues. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be treated as blasphemers, and people are actually going to try to kill you. Um, You see, he's concerned that rather than following him through this, rather than continuing what they've been doing, that they're going to fall away and and stop doing this. Um, And rather than clinging to the truth that they've known, that they're going to start believing lies. So I kind of wanted to ask you guys, um, and we're going to pass the mic around for this, what, what lies are coming at us in our world that would tempt you to fall away? For them, it's you're going to be thrown, thrown out and told that you're rejecting God and that you're, you're offending God, you're blaspheming against God. What are the lies that come at us in daily life? So there, the disciples in the passage are facing this reality that all of the culture around them is about to start telling them, you, are, you think you're following God by following Jesus. You're not. You're actually blaspheming against God name, God's name. You're actually um, you're antithetical to what it means to follow God, so we're going to reject you. And that's a lie coming at them because they know the truth. So I want to see for us in our culture, what are the lies that we encounter like that? I think the biggest one I come across is on Chevy. Right. <laughs> the little green light. Or just talk about that. I'm just trying to project as best I can. Um, I'll say the biggest the biggest lie that I hear that comes often. Thank you, right. Um kind of two part. Kind of two part part is it's all in men. It's all in my head. And then they kind of go, they kind of twist the blade and say, and it's just a mental crutch. It's a crutch you're using to get through life. Yeah. It's convenient truth to believe. I had a coworker two weeks ago say to me that she was very interested in religion. The more she studied, the more she thought that they were all the same or all just had the same idea underneath, which I think Jesus doesn't really allow that as a position when you really listen to the words he's saying, but if you just take moral, high-level ideas out, you can come to that conclusion and miss what's really important. Yeah. Probably similar to what you were talking about. I asked my buddy the other day what he thought of Christianity. 
and I know he doesn't believe in it. And he said, um, Kelly has a crutch. He said, it's a, a lie to give people purpose who have rights would not have any purpose. Hmm. Yeah. So, I think when God asks me to do things that are hard and that are going to hurt, um, I want to share that with people. God's calling in my life, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to hurt, and it's probably going to hurt them. Um, they, are, they always say, like, why would you do that? That's, that's not fun. That doesn't feel good. Don't do it. Why would God ask you to do something that's hard? Right. Clearly, God would want your life to be easy. <laughs> we believe that God is oriented around us rather than us around him. I just wanted to share a really quick story that came to mind this morning that happened like years ago, um, and I don't know why I thought of it this morning, but I was once at a laundromat doing like a lot of clothes, and I put in, um, like it was one of those really big washers because I had a laundry to do, so it did like four loads at once, like 75 pounds worth of clothes. <laughs> so it was $4 in quarters, and I put the quarters in and the washer didn't work, so I went to a new washer, put $4 in, and this other woman went up to the washer, and she was like, oh, hey, it's, it's working now. Do you want to put your stuff in? And I was like, oh, no, don't don't worry about it. Like, you go ahead, like, you know, take it. And she was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, please. Like, Jesus loves you. She stopped, gave me the coldest look. And she was like, well, I think you mean that your actions are what are kind here. Like, this is not Jesus intervening. Like, Jesus didn't give me the quarters. And I was like, okay, love <laughs> She got very offended that I gave praise to God because she did not understand the concept of that love that I, I experience on a daily basis. She did not want to believe that there's a deeper love like that, that like it, it was easier to believe I was being kind than I was like just being like giving what has been given to me. Right. And on some level, if you're attributing your kindness to someone else, then maybe she can't take credit for her own kindness. the kindness of God because it always used to feel like my whole life growing up that the bottom would never fall completely out. And I was sharing this with Ryan the other day that, you know, things would get really bad, but it wouldn't get completely bad and horrible because God would stop it. Because somehow that's what faith does. And I know intellectually I never believe that to be true. Intellectually I never believe that just because you're a person of faith doesn't mean bad things happen to you. But it seems like lately the bottom keeps falling out in ways that sometimes seem irreparable. Um, this for me has caused not doubt that God exists, but doubt that God loves me. Um, and so I really that sort of story of mm-hmm. not understanding the love of God is kind of resonating with me right now. Yeah. I don't walk. Is that mic still on? It's coming and going a little bit. Break it down. Having lived in the Middle East, uh, a lot of my God comes up as problem uh, evil and suffering, and particularly like eternal election kind of that idea, eternal suffering, the constant. This side. <laughs> um, this machine we were just talking about this last night, this idea of blessings being something kind of quantifiable. And we were talking at the bed last night about how how often blessings are referenced in the New Testament and they're never they're never attached to something physical. 
like the blessing wasn't like a physical gift that was given. I think for me, I struggle with the fact that like the blessing of faith, the blessing of salvation, isn't really a gift as it's not really enough. When I look around at how how much need there is, or how much like physical need and physical gifts can go, how like how far they can go, and I, I think I struggle with being like, well, when I like see poverty, is salvation really enough? You know, is faith really enough? And I think internally I struggle with that, but then when I look around me and talk to them, like, well, how can just faith and Jesus be really enough? Yeah. When, like, I could see blessings in physical form being, like, so much more tactile and so much more effective. I think I struggle with that. Yeah, definitely. So as you think about all these lies that are coming at us, um, I want to be clear that lies aren't enough to tempt us to fall away. No one ever had a convincing lie come at them and thought, okay, maybe everything that I believed isn't true. Um, See, falling away results from those lies being coupled with situational sorrow. Um, And that's what we see in the passage. See, there's always context. There's always something relational going on. Um, someone hurt you so bad that you can't believe anymore. You have to leave the church. Um, you have this conflict with the leadership, and you couldn't square it, and maybe maybe none of this is even true, you know, these type of things. Or maybe it's a life hardship, like losing someone, losing a parent, losing a child, and how could God be good if you're suffering through this? Um, so there's, there's this duality of lies coming at you at the right time, that makes it makes the recipe for falling away. So what is the sorrow that for the disciples could catalyze this falling away? And Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. So all Jesus had to say for sorrow to fill their heart was, I'm leaving. And that, with them having seen all that they've been doing together, all that they've been doing in life together, the things that, the the challenges that have been coming at them, um, they're they're distraught. How how could we possibly do this without you? And he's just told them what's going to happen. Not only that, it's going to get more intense after I leave. You're going to be rejected by your community, thrown out of the synagogues, actually hunted down and killed. Um, and they've given up everything at this point to be with him. They have no safety net to fall back on. They can't go back to their families. You know, Jesus said, leave your father and mother and follow me. And they've done that. Um, and so I wonder how many of us feel this way. How many of us are living life as if Jesus went to the father and we no longer have him with us. Um, do you feel like Jesus left you? I want to ask you guys. Do you, are you carrying that weight through life, feeling like you're kind of doing it on your own? And Jesus answers this question. How does he answer it? These two issues we've been talking about, of falling away and sorrow. And see, Jesus has one solution for both problems, and that's sending the helper. He starts off the passage with this promise When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So who is the Helper? We um, we call him the Holy Spirit a lot in in church, and that's how he's referred to a lot in in many passages. In this passage, there's a different word for him that's kind of unique and is actually not used very commonly anywhere else in 
in Greek writing and in scripture. Um, and the word is parakletos. And a lot of, um, a lot of Bible commentators and, and um, scholars have gotten to the point where they... It's such a unique word, kind of like how we have... Baptism is a word that was invented in English to um, describe the word bab- baptizo in the Greek. The commentators have kind of done that with this word parakletos because all of our English translations fall short. We, we translate to the helper, the counselor, the comforter, the advocate, and all of these words are so much so meaningful, but we don't have a word in English that they're rolled up into, and so they call him the paraclete. Um, and that the definition is one who consoles or comforts, one who encourages or uplifts, hence refreshes, and or one who intercedes on our behalf as an advocate in court. And so you actually see him sort of having some of the same identity as Jesus being our advocate, and they have a lot of commonality in that. Um, See, in John 14, Jesus introduces this idea to us by saying, I'm sending you another helper, implying that that we have a first helper in Jesus himself being our helper. Um, and he reemphasizes this saying, you know him, for he dwells with you, meaning I'm with you now. I am the helper with you right now and will be in you, implying a helper to come who will not just be with you in bodily form, but will actually be inside of you. Um, Jesus with them now will be in them when Jesus goes to the Father. And he also calls him the spirit, spirit of truth. The very essence of truth, the only one who can actually separate the truth from these lies that are coming at us by bearing witness to them. Um, and this is really important because, as we've said, there are many lies coming at us, and there it can oftentimes be um, very difficult to weed through it on our own, so we need someone else. Um, so how does the spirit of truth prevent falling away? The spirit of truth keeps us from falling away by bearing witness. This very act of separating truth from lies is how we're kept from falling away. Um, and what does it mean to bear, bear witness? And it simply means to show that something exists or is true. Um, see, the only, he's the only one who can do that for us. And there are two ways that we see him, um, that we see this playing out in the passage that Jesus is counseling them on. The first is convicting. Verse 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. Is judged. So first, we need to define a few things. This word convicting has sort of, for for us, become a Christianese word of, I feel really convicted about this. um, And if we're not careful, can lose its meaning. And there's actually a much more common word we use that means the exact same thing, and that's to be proven wrong. To be convinced or proven wrong is the same as to be convicted. Um, And the other thing we need to define is the world. You see a lot of this passage, he says, um, convicting the world. Um, And so what does he mean by the world? And in the book of John... Uh, case after case, we see that the world refers to the unbelieving Jewish world. So Jesus is speaking to them about the culture that they're in um, and the challenges they're going to face in that particular culture. 
So there are three things that he says the the Holy Spirit helper is going to prove the world wrong on. The first is sin and the reasoning he gives. Sin because they do not believe in me. And you see, they had their own idea of sin, as we've seen throughout Jesus' life of dealing with the Pharisees and dealing with the religious leaders. He's constantly coming into contact, into conflict with them based on this. They're pushing the importance of traditions, the importance of uh, all of the man-made traditions and all of the um, statues that have cropped up over the years um, don't work on the Sabbath and, and, and things like that. And Jesus, um, remember, quotes Mark 7, the prophet Isaiah saying, you, you've left the commandment of, of God and hold to the tradition of men. And so that's kind of their idea of morality is they've got this law, this system that they've actually added to over the years. And their idea of morality is keeping the letter of that as much as you can and really keeping the whole letter of it if you have any hope of, um, of succeeding. The spirit of truth comes in and says you're wrong. That's not sin. It's like that may there may be glimmers, uh, pieces of sin in transgressing the law, but the ultimate sin that we're addressing today is unbelief. It's not believing in Jesus, whom the Father sent. So if you reject Jesus, you've actually rejected God Himself. And so it doesn't matter if you keep statutes, even God's statutes, if you rejected God Himself. So the next is righteousness, the system of morality that they have of keeping these laws um, to the to perfection, to the letter, um, is for them their effort to attain, to spend the life the, the way that they have always grown up believing gets them to the prize. So righteousness is the right way to spend a life to get to the prize, or the good life as Socrates called it. Um, their idea of righteousness is keeping the whole law. Um, and they see Jesus as a transgressor because of healing on the Sabbath, because of um, all of these things he's done, because he claimed equality with God, um, because he claimed to be God. And Jesus says, you think you understand righteousness, that this is what a righteous life looks like. But if I go to the Father, which I'm about to do, that actually proves that I am the righteous one. And it proves wrong completely your system of righteousness. And lastly, He convicts them of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. You see, they have set themselves up as judge. They've decided, they've come up with their own definition of sin. They've come up with their own definition of righteousness to get to by not transgressing their definition of sin. And they've set themselves up as judge to decide who's in and who's out, essentially. And we do the very same thing in our lives. We decide what what sins, what statutes of God are still applicable today and what aren't. And I want to see for you guys, what are some of the ways in your own life with the people around you that you've set yourselves up as judge or you've seen others set themselves up as judge? I can talk loud. Um, <laughs> just the other day at work, just like, just the kind of, kind of gossip that comes up sometimes at work where someone will speak negatively about someone else and um, it's funny because I think my role is often to like be the reverse judge and like shed the positive spin on it as like, well, I'm better at perceiving this person than this person because they're being negative and I'm being positive. Still kind of judgment in a way, but just this idea that like, it's even in the workplace, right? Like people think that they have an opinion that's right about someone else, regardless of the evidence against that. 
you know? Right. Like our our uh, assessment of someone's value right. is most important. Yeah. Anyone else? Anytime I'm the standard, it makes me the judge. Mm-hmm. So if I'm the standard, everyone has to be like me or think like me or do the same, do it the same way that I would do it. So I become the judge of them. Right, so if we have our own standard of righteousness that we're attaining, then we're going to start judging other people by that standard of righteousness. And if they're not living the good life by our definition, then they're obviously in sin and not doing what they need to be doing. I usually apply some of cleaning in my house. What was that? I don't live up to my standard of cleaning, Earl, so it's not good. <laughs> Is that directed towards anyone in particular? Do you have a lot of people living at your house right now? (laughs) I think what's interesting, though, about when we set ourselves up as judges, it breeds this sort of defensiveness we have. So, for instance, I find that I'm the ultimate judge of being a great parent in my house. And when I go out of my house in public... And I start to feel like other parents might be judging me. I feel that I need to justify my decisions. And I feel that I'm still the ultimate super judge of parenting. You just need to listen to my perspective. Um, this isn't just like in one place where I can keep it inside my head. It just it kind of takes over. Mm-hmm. This judgeness. Yeah. I think it's also in the, like, I work in kind of a, a young like uh, culture within my work so I work in like a technology software company a lot of, a lot of people around like my level and like in my teams are in their um, mid-20s to early 30s and a lot of people are like single and, and like are all about like their image whether it's on social media or in friend groups and I think it's constantly uh, it's constantly like defending like a good like this, this image that we're wanting to portray mm-hmm. uh, in LA of cool and hip and like going out and like I had so much fun last night because of XYZ but it's last weekend and it's like constant and like that that's not about and I think that's perceiving that people are judging your image you have to like live up to a certain certain standard of cool or hip or I'm on this diet or like those things are just so in like the fabric of the culture where I'm working with people that I do life with on a day to day basis and it's it's really I mean I didn't realize this enough but it's all because everyone perceives they're being judged by how they're living constantly um, and so that's just like innate and I, I, I think the word fabric is in the fabric of how we yeah. So for for them, for the disciples, the uh, the prize was getting to God, right? Which is what we would still say is the ultimate prize for life. For that context, the prize is living the best life, living the coolest life, the most. Having the most fame. Having the most fame. Yeah, right. And so the standard of righteousness is how you have to live to get to that. And then you judge everyone else by whether or not they are also in that rat race with you. Because you don't want to be confronted with the idea that maybe there's a different standard that's better than my standard that actually gets to a better prize. Um, 
And so the source of this false judgment, it's not something that we just start doing. It's not like, it is part of human nature, but it's not in a way, because the actual source of false judgment is the father of lies, which she just talks about in chapter 8, the prince of this world. So there's actually someone pulling strings behind you that's encouraging you to set yourself up as judge. See, they judge Jesus not realizing that at the cross and the resurrection, the ruler of this world, the one who is actually giving them their platform to judge him and to um, to cast him down, that he would actually be deposed and that their authority would be removed. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So at the cross, Satan is disarmed because sin is removed. The power of sin is broken. The the presence of sin is removed. And ultimately, um, when he rises, we're victorious over the power of sin and are able to uh, be freed from that. And so that... The, the authority which gives us the ability to be our own judge is gone. The, the, the liar who gives us the license to judge is, is himself judged. And so um, the counselor, the spirit of truth, is the one who does all of this. And how does that prevent falling away? Well, it humbles me because it reminds me that I am not an objective viewer of truth. Maybe some of you are. But I am often carried by the waves of emotion or circumstance or sorrow, like we see in this passage, where I'm, I'm just so, so, such a mess right now that I can't even, I don't even know what's, what's up and what's down. The other way is it relieves any weight that we have, frees us from the obligation of living in this sin-stained world that we call home, or we call home for a little while, um, it relieves us from an obligation that can be, um, can be crushing, where we feel like we either have to assimilate and do what everyone else is doing, or we have to retaliate. And we have to suddenly you, like, wage culture wars, which I don't see any, that anywhere in Scripture, by the way. Um, we have to say, well, you're doing that, you're saying that's a good thing, well, I'm going to boycott and I'm going to come against you and I'm not going to see Beauty and the Beast anymore. And <laughs> all of these things. And it's like, yeah, the, the tension's real, right? The tension is so real that we're in this world where we see lies coming at us and if our choices are assimilate or retaliate, and we think the, the pious religious thing to do is retaliate. But if our job's not to change anyone's mind, if we've actually been given the helper within us to do the convicting work, then we, we're freed from that burden. We can actually live life in this culture. We can actually be a light. We can actually be the, whole, the vessel of the Holy Spirit, the vessel of God in our world. Um, so convicting is the first way he bears witness. The second way is declaring. Verse 12 says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
it's interesting that he says there are many things that you cannot bear now. And it makes me think of, I don't know if you guys have ever had a conversation with someone where they're just saying, you just have to understand this is how it is and this is what's wrong, this is what you're doing wrong. And your walls go up, your ears shut, and you can't hear anything else they're saying because they're trying to diagnose and fix you and tell you the problem without any care to your heart and what you're actually going through. But if someone actually asks you questions, shows an interest, um, tries to draw out, why are you doing that? What is, um, we do this all the time, we try to do this all the time with our kids, it doesn't always work. Um, what, what's the heart behind that? Why, why are you acting in this way? Um, see, that's what the spirit of truth does for us. He guides us into all truth. Um, and maybe Jesus, knowing this, Think of all the things he wanted to tell the disciples, all the things he wanted to say. If you would just stop doing this, if you would just not be this way, this is going to happen. And when it happens, don't do this. But he knew. That's why he says it's to your advantage that I go, because my spirit in you is different than me trying to tell you all the things that if I think if I could tell you, it would make all the difference in the world. We have to have the spirit of truth to do that because the spirit of truth takes the truth of God, ultimate truth, the essence of truth from Jesus, the word of truth. He says he declares everything that is mine and makes it intelligible and effectual to our hearts. So without the Holy Spirit, we would have God, the ultimate source of truth, God, the father. We would have God, the son, the word of truth, but we would have no ability to understand it. And no ability to actually walk in that truth and to have that change our lives. And so we need the spirit of truth to actually be the one who does that in our hearts. So he keeps us from falling away by bearing witness like this. But what about the sorrow? Like, even if we're, so if we're choosing not to fall away, doesn't that just mean we're walking head on into the sorrow? Um, is that really the choice we want to make? Um, how does he help that? And the helper solves our sorrow by turning it into joy. First, I want to re-examine sorrow because it, at the first, it may have sounded like I was saying it's something to be avoided or it's something that we just want to move past. But the reality is you have two choices. It's to go through sorrow at times or to fall away. You can't choose one. You can't choose a third option, unfortunately. There is sorrow in this world. And so sorrow attempts falling away. And the disciples very easily could escape this, right? They could not be thrown out of the synagogues. They could not be hunted down and killed if they just chose not to believe. They fell away. If they just walked away and essentially did what Peter did when, when the night that, that Jesus goes, is, is, um, is betrayed and said, I don't know that man. Right? We could, do, we could all do that. We could avoid sorrow. But Jesus says... Sorrow is necessary. Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So the first question, as I read that, is... Are we willing to experience something different than the world? 
Are we willing to look out at the landscape of what's going on in our world, what culture tells us is wrong and what needs to be fixed, um, and believe something different? Are we willing to experience sorrow now for a little while while the world celebrates? Are we willing to experience sorrow knowing the lies that are being believed that are being celebrated around us? Because it's a hard thing and it'd be much easier to walk away. It'd be much easier to not walk through that. It's so much easier to continue being my own judge because I can actually craft a system in which somehow that doesn't hurt as much or maybe... um, Maybe I can just get out of the feeling of being in this world where I am constantly, the sorrow is coming at me, and I'm constantly feeling the weight of that. You see, it'd be a lot easier if when I did something that evidenced that I wasn't believing who God is. Sometimes when I sin um, against others, sometimes when I sin against my wife, If I just didn't have to confess that, if I could just move on and believe the lie, well, in my system of righteousness, see, the way it actually works is you only confess some of the time, and you decide what level of sin means you need to confess. And so I'm actually not going to confess that right now, and because I don't want to walk through the sorrow of the sorrow for a little while of confessing sin, being reminded that I need Jesus. It'd actually be better if I could avoid that sorrow. So I'm not going to do that right now. Um, and this actually came up with us uh, a few weeks ago. Um, see, Robin and I have sort of, over the, the years we've been married, have decided for our, our marriage and the decisions we've made and the way that our relationship is founded, it's actually better for us if we don't watch certain movies and certain shows. Um, not in a legalistic way, because um, to become a Christian, you have to stop listening to music and stop listening to anything but Christian music and start watch, stop watching any movies. None of that. It's When I see these images, they come into my mind and into our relationship. And if we see them together, then something happens that is now out of our control. So we've agreed that that's something that we don't want to be a part of our marriage. And I, a few weeks ago, wanted to watch one of these shows because I had heard good things about it and wanted to see what it was all about. And it was in the back of my mind. I watched a show. It wasn't what it was cracked up to be. And I was like, well, at least now I know. And it had all the things that in it that made me think I shouldn't watch it in the first place. Or made me know that it would have an adverse effect in, in my heart and in, in our marriage. And I was like, well, that wasn't really outright sin. Like, it was a mistake. I shouldn't have done it. I don't I don't need to confess that. That's we'll just move on. I'll keep preparing for my sermon. <laughs> just don't need to confess that. It's, it's cool. Um, and like, has having these on ongoing dialogues with God. I was like, God, that's cool, right? Like, I don't need to like stop and confess that, and we're still good. Like, up until like a week ago, when I was like going to the coffee shop for my first, my last afternoon of full afternoon of sermon prep. I was like, okay, Robin, we got to do this. And, of course, she's upset and, and crushed. And um, whether you think it's a big deal or not a big deal for us in our relationship, it's a big deal. Um, and that was sorrow. Like, I could have chosen to avoid that. I didn't have to walk into that. 
but I knew that the, the new life that would come from it was so much more worth my time than, the, than avoiding that sorrow. You see, what do we give up if we choose not to walk through these, these times of sorrow? Whether it's, you know, for, for Jesus, it wasn't sorrow for his own actions. It was sorrow on behalf of us where he was taking the penalty and taking the, the consequences for our sin. But when we, in our lives, choose not to walk out sorrow, what are we giving up on? We're giving up on new life. We're giving up in labor. Can you imagine if a mom in labor said, I can't do it anymore? I don't even, I don't want to know what that looks like. Just the, the baby, it's not worth it to me. That, that wouldn't ever even happen, Right? Because when the new life is born, when the baby comes out, the pain of all that labor is forgotten, right? Like no, no mom holding her newborn baby is saying, I just hurt so much right now. Like maybe, maybe, I I don't want to speak for moms, but maybe, maybe a few minutes later after the um, adrenaline leaves your system and you start feeling what just happened. (laughs) Um, But in the moment when the doctor first puts the baby in your arms, None of that is present. Are we giving that up? Are we, are we willing to give that up so that we can avoid a, a little sorrow? And sorrow is purposeful. See, Jesus is, remember, they're facing the sorrow of Jesus not being with them bodily. And he's trying to coach them through this. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. A little while and I'll be ripped from your embrace, tortured and killed. But don't avoid this, because if you do, you'll miss what comes next. You'll miss it completely. See, because after a little while, then you will see me and your sorrow will turn into joy. It's not that your sorrow will be taken away and replaced with joy. It will actually, the things that made you sorrowful before will now produce joy in you. As I redeem them. Verse 22 says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So Jesus rises from death. And the sorrow at the cross becomes joy in the resurrection. And this joy is different and completely different from any joy, any other joy in the world in two main ways. And the first one we see in the passage is that no one can take this joy from us. See, the result of Jesus going to the Father, as we've been talking about, is that, yeah, Jesus isn't with us anymore on earth. But it's better, as he said, because now... Instead of Jesus being with us, we have Jesus in us. The same spirit, like, have you guys ever thought about this? That the one at work and rising Jesus from death was the Holy Spirit. The one who did that is now living inside us. And so instead of having Jesus walking next to us, we actually have the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of truth living inside us. 
So though Jesus went away from us, now he can never be taken away from us. No matter what, our joy is secure. The second way our joy is different is that our joy is made full. We see how in verses 23 and 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And then in verse 26, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And that distinction is monumental. Who do we pray to? Right? Up until this time, you, they, were, they, would say, they would pray with Jesus. They would say, Jesus, pray for us. Jesus, pray for us. What he's saying here is that I'm not praying for you anymore. I'm done doing that. See, after I go to the Father, you will pray to him directly. You will pray to him in my name, which is the first time that's ever been possible in the history of the world. See, first century Jews have only ever interacted with God through the temple system, priests making sacrifice on their behalf, finding a rabbi to follow if they're very devout, learning all these things. Jesus is saying, because you've loved me, now you pray directly to the Father in my name. You don't need anyone else praying on your behalf ever again. Do you believe this? This is crazy. Do you, be, do you feel the love of the Father? Because this changes everything. If you don't feel the love of the Father, then none of this matters. And this is actually the third thing that the Helper bears witness of. Um, so you remember a few weeks ago, Tripp preached out of chapter 14, and Jesus made a promise in that passage. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You will see me because you, he will be in us. This reminds me of a friend, a conversation I had with a friend a few years ago. Um, very well educated, probably the only actual literal biblical scholar I know. And he, tell, he told me something that, that stuck with me and I haven't been able to get over. He said, you know, don't, in certain circumstances... Don't preach the fatherhood of God to kids that are coming from a broken home. If you have kids who have dads who left or dads who abuse them, don't talk about the fatherhood of God. And I don't know how I didn't jump out of my chair and wring his neck. (laughs) Because, so, Jesus is just saying, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. But we should... In talking to people who need Jesus, who need him, his spirit living in them more than than anyone possibly we've ever met. In talking to these foster kids, we should say, oh, because your dad wasn't able to take care of you, we're not going to talk about the father. No, we we should not leave them as orphans. Jesus says, no, we will not. He will not do that to us. And instead, we get to display what the father's love is like. See, the helper is the means, the only means by which we are prevented from feeling like orphans. Otherwise, it's impossible to feel the love of the Father. 
Romans 8 echoes this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, provided that we walk through that sorrow. The reason we are not orphans is the Spirit now bears witness that we are children of God. And I got stuck on this um, a few uh, months ago. We had a, a quarterly training. A guy named Chuck Deschwin came out, and he was talking about all the ramifications for why we don't want to neglect the, the work of the Spirit in our lives and, and, and living out and fought, uh, led by the Spirit. And the number one thing he said was, if we, don't, if we aren't listening to the Spirit, if we aren't being led by the Spirit, we end up living like orphans, feeling unloved and on our own. I don't want to live in as orphan. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to live as an orphan. I don't want to teach our kids to live as orphans. See, the helper was sent so you never have to be alone again. That's the reality. You have someone with you forever through Christ. You never have to wonder if the Father loves you because His love is poured out in your heart. This is joy made full. This is joy that's different than anything you will ever experience anywhere else. Joy that's different than that feeling of sublime we talked about at the beginning. Feeling small amidst the vastness, which sounds really great, wandering the Vermont countryside and, and taking it all in and feeling your place in the world. But what's better than that? What have we been talking about this morning? What's better than feeling small in the vastness is feeling the vastness of the love of the eternal God within yourself. 